So here we are, a week of sitting in the corner, and I finally landed here. Uh, when I saw a guy this morning, um, he said, Oh, I, I told everyone you were giving your talk this, this evening. And I said, No, he didn't. <laughs> but he did. And uh, you all have been very supportive. I've felt the energy holding me all day. Um, as I prepared for this evening. So thank you for your listening, and I'm really happy to be able to offer some reflections to you. Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit or, or reflect a bit about compassion, both self-compassion uh, and general compassion, and uh, using compassion and mindfulness to bring our minds and hearts together. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Christina Feldman, uh, one of the teachers here, um, this is a bit of what she has to say about love and compassion. Love asks you to let go. Compassion asks you to let go. Your capacity to be wholeheartedly present for anyone or anything in this world asks you to release your longing for how things used to be and your yearning for a better future. Letting go frees you to take your seat firmly in this moment and in the truth of loss and change. Letting go frees you of the burden of obsessing about what used to be and what might be in the future. Your willingness to let go of what should be, should be liberates you to embrace what is. This is one of the hardest lessons for us to learn and the lesson that none of us can avoid in this life. Most of us discover through reflection that the places we resist and cling to most tenaciously are also the places we suffer most acutely. They are the places we feel most imprisoned in a world governed by self and disconnected from others. Compassion is a release from that imprisonment and a healer of separation. Letting go does not leave you marooned in indifference or apathy. You are not asked to let go of your love or bonds of commitment and care. You are learning step by step, moment by moment, to let go of suffering and separation. Your capacity to find a boundless compassion is released by your capacity to let go. So we've spent our first week together cultivating the mind-heart through Vipassana practice, building momentum, and deepening our capacity with concentration. We've heard teachings on the four foundations and received instructions for working with the body-breath, thoughts and emotions, Vedana, and walking meditation. We have listened to teachings on living in samsara, mindfulness of hindrances, the precepts, 
and the refuge. We have also spent time in the practice of loving-kindness, metta, and have worked with the benefactor, ourself, and a friend. I'd say it's been a full and rich retreat week, notwithstanding all of the nature that has joined us, including the full moon last night. I don't know if anyone stopped to take a look, but it was beautiful. The changing colors of the trees, the animals and insects, other beings, seen and unseen, all gathered to support us in our efforts. All of us here, joining our intentions to establish and nurture our practices as we move forward toward wisdom, freedom, and sustained joy. One of the things that struck me as I have listened to the questions, as I have listened to the instructions, have met with some of you in interviews, and have just felt into the field of being that we've created together, is how in this first week of six weeks or three months, there's such a yearning for peace and understanding and wisdom, and how we can spiral ourselves into uh, leaning into in a very constricted, kind of contracted way to get it right. One of the things that I've uh, come upon in being with you is really this time, this, these first seven days, being an opportunity to really get in your bones, get in your knowing, get the taste and smell of it. There is suffering. Unavoidable. And there's actually a bit of freedom and release from understanding that and allowing the wisdom of what that brings with it to enfold and integrate within us. Bhante Gunaratana says, meditation is called the great teacher. It is the cleansing crucible fire that works slowly but surely through understanding. The greater our understanding, the more flexible and tolerant the more compassionate you can be. You feel love towards others because you understand them and you understand others because you have understood yourself. When you have learned compassion for yourself, compassion for others is automatic. So why have we come? Why even bother what's brought you here? The act of meditating is like cultivating a new land. To cultivate your mind, first you clear out the various irritants that are in the way, pulling them out by the roots so they won't grow back. Then you fertilize, you pump energy and discipline into the mental soil. Then you sow the seed and harvest the crops of faith, morality, mindfulness, and wisdom. A purpose of meditation is personal transformation. Meditation changes your character by a process of sensitization, by training you to be deeply aware of your own thoughts, words, and deeds. Life becomes a glide instead of a struggle a glide instead of a struggle. All this happens through understanding. 
Meditation sharpens your concentration and your thinking power. Piece by piece, your own subconscious motives and mechanics become clear to you. Intuition sharpens. The precision of your thoughts increases and gradually you come to a direct knowledge of things as they are, without prejudice and without illusion. Ajahn Sumedho speaks of suffering as the good of suffering. When you fully accept dukkha, you also discover distance from your difficulties, so it becomes impersonal. The way out of suffering is through suffering. However, to let go of suffering, we have to admit it into our consciousness, as opposed to all the maneuvers and the uh, behaviors and the uh, thoughts that are designed to push it away to have us turn away as opposed to turn towards. Inevitably, our freedom and wisdom exists within the knowledge of clearly knowing there is suffering. So to come back around to just repeating, this is our first week together, and I've observed lots of suffering. Matter of fact, I was suffering before I had to come in here and give this talk. (laughs) (laughs) stop trying to avoid or change or outrun it you know there's a story I told um, I know I've told it once so maybe it's recorded and one of the things that um, is one of my peeves is um, although this doesn't happen with my illustrious colleagues sitting up here a story is told four or five or six or seven times um, so when I looked at it, I said, I can tell this one. I've only told it once. I, thi- I think it's on tape only once. So in terms of this becoming familiar with suffering, and I am aware that there are many of you in here who are in your own, what I called for myself, two years of living dangerously. There was a period about uh, eight or nine years ago. It was just after or, or towards the tail end of uh, the recession, and for some of us, the depression. Uh, But it was during that time period where over uh, the span of a year and a half, uh, beginning with my husband um, falling down some stairs and tearing the ligaments in his knees, knee, um, actually he fell down the stairs of the dining room over here. It wasn't the stairs that are there now. It was a stair without railings. And um, IMS actually began a cascade of understanding about impermanence, which is what I came to know at the end of that year and a half. So he fell down the stairs, and it was our first kind of real meeting um, uh, in, a, in a very sudden and hard way, um, illness, sickness the aging of the body. About three months after that happened with my husband, uh, my father died after a period of 10 years of dealing with dementia. About three months after that, I was informed that I was losing my job. And uh, I was able to uh, 
manipulate the condition such that I could hold on to it a little bit longer, but it was inevitable that I was going to lose my job. About three months after that, I did lose my job. And then for the next year, almost maybe eight months, from the time I lost my job uh, until the end of that period, I was in an immense struggle with first my husband, who was kind of out of it because, oh, the piece that I lost, left out was somewhere in that period. He lost his job. So here we are in the recession depression, owning a home with no one having a job and the loss of my father. And for that eight months or so, uh, I came to know a suffering and a struggle that I had never known before. Because basically, um, in looking back, what I'm aware of, and I told somebody my internal experience of that time was like running hurdles. I don't know if anyone in here is an athlete or has ever run hurdles, but when you run the hurdles, you know you have a very short period of time to recover from the time you jump up and your foot hits the ground and the next hurdle comes. That's what that period felt like for me. I could hardly catch my breath. And in that eight months after those um, losses and the inevitable loss of our house, I did everything that I knew to do to try to hold on to this house because it did not fit with my self-identification that um, I should be in a predicament where I would lose my house. Finally, after about eight months of that, I surrendered basically and... um, um, sat with, I could no longer engage any of the tricks and magical thinking and actions that I'd been engaged with for the eight months trying to hold on to this house. Because the other piece of losing the house was, here I was at 53 years old, probably going to have to move in with my mom, with my husband and my cat, as a result of losing my house. So was, there was the struggle and the suffering around the losing of the house and the, the struggle and the suffering of being an adult daughter contemplating, facing, moving back in with a parent when that's not how it had been. And I literally just about made myself sick with the worry. And it was out of that experience, out of that uh, year and a half, two-year period that I actually, prior to that, I'd been sitting retreats annually for 10 years or so, but out of that experience, after um, really coming up close and personal with the struggles of my life and finding some clarity and understanding truly about the nature of things changing, Um, that I stepped into the Dharma in a much deeper, more full way than I had ever been before, thus ending up before you now, speaking into last night, Bonnie um, frequently said how much she loves the Dharma. Uh, Well, yes, that is true for me, and I know that I am the Dharma, and the Dharma is me, and that that's what actually held my sanity for that year and a half, the Dharma. So that was just a little story about the first noble truth. There is suffering. 
Choosing to bear your suffering takes an act of courage. But once you do, you have initiated the process of your transformation. The opposite of suffering is not happiness. It would seem so, perhaps. But the actuality is that non-suffering is having a relaxed, composed mind that is fully present with whatever is occurring in the moment. And it is the capacity to be in relationship to whatever is arising such that you are able to respond from your deepest intentions. And it is a feeling of relatedness in your life that is free from aversion to suffering. In each moment, we always get to start again. That's really useful to remember whether you are um, newer to long retreating or whether you've been here four, five, or six times. You've never been here before. So always an opportunity to release the tightness around how it has been and to really get present to how it is because it's in the process of that um, um, commitment and intention that you actually get to strengthen and develop the capacity to bring this into life. Because even in life, not even in life, in life, every moment is different than it has been before, even if it looks like it's the same. And to bring that fresh present um, mindful moment to each moment as it moves forward and you move through it um, is a real gift that comes from this practice over time. If we can bring awareness and wisdom to each moment in a continuous and sustained way, then nature will handle the rest. This will then give us the momentum to move forward with our practice with the only effort required being a genuine interest in seeing what meditation can uncover and bring into our lives. So be aware, be present, allow wisdom to reveal itself and hold it all with compassion. This quote, I don't know who it's from, um, but I'm gonna read it anyway. Use your voice for kindness, your ears for compassion, your hands for charity, your mind for truth, and your heart for love. One of the things that most nourishes true compassion is clarity. When we know what we are thinking and know what we are feeling, this clarity differentiates compassion from what might be thought of as a kind of self-preoccupation when we can care only about ourselves and not about others. The Buddha said at one point that if we truly loved ourselves, we would never harm another because if we harm another, it is in some way diminishing who we are. It is taking away from rather than adding to our lives. As the Buddha is said to have said, 
Just as the dawn is the forerunner and the first indication of the rising sun, so is right view the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states. And by right view, I'm really applying it here to the recognition of the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, that we cannot avoid it, and that we, um, it, 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 there's actually a great freedom and a great, this is going to sound like really, but a great freedom in being able to turn towards the suffering and allow ourselves to engage with what arises as we meet it. And that's what we're in the practice of now. And you're so blessed and fortunate to be here for the length of time, whether it's six weeks or three months, that there's a real opportunity um, to really allow yourself to go um, wherever it is that you need to go to gain the wisdom and understanding without being contracted around a time frame. One of the things that I said in one of the um, interviews that I was uh, speaking with someone today was, and I've said this uh, yesterday as well to someone I was speaking to, this is the first week. Like, give yourself a break. (laughs) You know, I I really like to think about it like, um, you know, Bonnie and and others have been talking about purification, this being a path of purification and cultivation, and that is true. But before we can purify anything, we got to detox. Because we come in here um, with the, 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 uh, the, the clothes, the coat, the, um, the suit that we wear in the world that we think we need to wear in order to successfully navigate the various things we have to navigate at our jobs, in our homes, with our children, with our spouses, with our parents, with our pets, you name it. But when we come in here, We forget we can put that down, put it down, and really allow the detoxification process to happen so that we can then move forward in terms of the purification, which is an odd word. I'm I'm conflicted about that word, but I'll use it, Um, as well as cultivation. So one of the things that I did, because I'm just trying to find now, because I am conflicted about that word. Hold on, I'm coming. Well, maybe not. I'll give it a try from my memory, and then about two pages later, I'll find it. But what I did was I looked up detoxification and it said something um, to the uh, effect of um, taking space taking time to release put down um, move away from harmful uh, substances so it was being defined in the domain of substance abuse however we're kind of addicted to all that stuff that we come in here with at least the mind is I don't know if you've ever thought about that way But what would it be like to have a mind that was free of the addictions of um, ways of being that we wear tightly um, with the misunderstanding that that's what we need to bring to the world to navigate? 
Another quote, a human being is part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited by time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Albert Einstein If we try to act compassionately out of a sense of personal unworthiness or the belief that others are more important than we are, the true source of our actions is aversion for ourselves, not compassion for others. If we offer help out of a sense of superiority to those we are assisting, our actions may actually be motivated by pride. Genuine compassion arises from the tender heart we feel from our own suffering. A quote from one of my teachers, Larry Yang, be compassionate to where you are. This is the process of the heart stretching beyond old patterns of defensiveness and reactivity. Oh, I told you I'd find the detox and the purification thing. Here it is. So another little story about me and detox and purification. So the last time I was in this room um, with a sangha in relationship to the three-month was three years ago when I was sitting in your seat and was a yogi. I was here for six weeks. About ten days into the retreat, maybe not even quite ten days, and Joseph and Carol were my uh, teachers during that retreat. About... Uh, eight days into the retreat, a symptom showed up that had not been there before, and it was a concerning symptom. And um, my mind, so this is 10 days into the retreat, so I was already developing some concentration, developing some, some wisdom, um, being present to some wisdom that was arising. And this symptom showed up and blew it all out the water. And I was in a place where Bonnie was actually um, in my position in that retreat. She was in training. And I broke silence and I ran to Bonnie. And not suggesting any of you do this. So this is what I did. It's not what I'm suggesting you do. I ran to Bonnie. I said, Bonnie, 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 please, can I get on the internet? I promise. I'm just going to look up this one thing. I won't go on my emails or anything like that. And I don't know if I should say this, but she allowed me to do that. And uh, when I went on the internet... <laughs> and looked up the symptoms, um, there were two things that were appropriate in relationship to the symptom, two, two explanations that were appropriate to the symptom I was looking at. And one of them, basically, I was going to die within a couple of weeks. <laughs> and the other one was, it's not too serious, you can kind of take care of it when you go home, and no, 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 no. So I left with that information from the internet. (laughs) 
and uh, went back to my room. And basically that night, I, um, I, uh, my body, I could not be still in the bed. I, I, you know, I was filled with agitation. I was filled with worry. I was filled with anxiety. And I moved through that dark night. And basically by the morning I had decided um, that I was going to stay because I had to decide whether I was going to stay or, or, or go um, and, and get this taken care of. I decided I was going to stay because I said, well, if I'm going to go out, can't get any better than this. <laughs> and I stayed and was greatly supported by Carol and Joseph and Joseph even. I mean, when I r reported it to him, he said, well... This might be a really good opportunity. <laughs> to explore the death meditation. Uh, and being his mentee as I am, I said, sure, Joseph, whatever you say, I'll, I'll, I'll run for it. And, and I did, and um, that retreat actually turned out to be um, life transformative no pun intended, and I did go get it looked at when I got out of here, and I did have to have surgery, and everything is fine, and I'm great. Um, but again, suffering, suffering, and how that suffering can actually be assuaged by the practices, the sangha, the teachers, the whole um, basket of holding of grace that exists for us while we're here, and which actually if we can really sink in and let it permeate our cells and our bodies that we take with us when we leave here and continue to move from in our lives. I had said to Bonnie yesterday, oh man, everyone is so serious. I'm going to do my uh, Dharma talk on play and relaxation. And Bonnie said, ah, play, you might not want to do that. And I thought about it, and I'm like, well, you know, there really does need to be an opportunity to experience the whole of who we are. We come here and we get so constricted and contracted around uh, uh, really trying to push through uh, the difficult places. I remember the other morning someone was talking about doing walking meditation. It was this gentleman right here and getting to the end of it and wanting to dance. And I said to Bonnie, that is uh, the body not being able to hold the joy, having to move with the joy. And, you know, that saying that's so familiar to many of us, if not all of us, it is true that our lives are made up of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So not to put that down while we are here, you know, as you back off, sometimes there's a need to really lighten it up a bit and then go back. Lighten it up and then go back. And the relaxation piece, one of the things that I was really present to in terms of watching the Olympics was that, you know, we were seeing these apps at the pinnacle moment of their existence in terms of what they've been training for, for sometimes their whole life, but certainly four, eight, ten years before they showed up at the Olympics. And most athletes, and many of you know if you're, if you're a performer, if you're an athlete, um, those pinnacle moments are really 
sourced in terms of accomplishment and resources by being relaxed. The practice becomes tight and constricted and contracted when we're moving in, moving towards, moving through, um, creating understanding and awareness for ourselves from a place that's not relaxed. So just want to offer you that, that that is an important, and relaxed, you know, is not sleep, but it is being in your body in a grounded, um, aware, appreciative way. We're engaged here um, in living and and being together and and engaging with our practices all within the sacred moment. Sally spoke about gratitude on the night that uh, she gave her her Dharma talk. Gratitude, um, generosity, laughter, uh, my husband is, uh, one of the things he does is laughter therapy, and he was telling me that in a day, an adult will laugh a little bit less than 10 times a day, where a child will laugh, given that the conditions are not uh, dark, 100 times a day. So something gets lost in translation as we cross the bridge from childhood into adulthood. And maybe there's a, a extending of a hand to bring that forward into our present day, which will actually fuel your practice in a very good way for you. Or another term that I really like to use, good enough way. Can we spend some time cultivating compassion as we do cultivating dislikes? Judgment, greed, anger, and ignorance. Each of us, in our own way, can try to spread compassion into people's hearts. This is the Dalai Lama's quote. Western civilizations these days place great importance on filling the human brain knowledge. But no one seems to care about filling the human heart with compassion. Would you consider using the embodied self in the service of others. Are you aware this practice is life-giving and restoring? Can you bring this life that you live present in terms of being with others, no matter what your skill level is, just from where you are right now? No place to get. No place to be. Just no place to get, no place to do. Just be. Compassion is a responsive movement of the heart and it is an incremental practice. So I've been talking a lot about um, compassion and I just wanted to just, just, couple of lines tell you or talk to you about um, the, the, the Dharma definition of the Dharma talking um, about compassion, which is karuna in Sanskrit and Pali, and it's one of the four Brahma-viharas. So um, as a, a whole sangha, um, the Brahma-vihara that we're engaging with and, and working with is loving-kindness or metta, 
that's the instructions that we'll be getting every Tuesday. But there are three others, and um, it's it's my the way I understand it is that really compassion puts the I'm going to say this in a, in a vegetarian puts the meat on meta or loving kindness. So I, I often think that they should not be taught separately, that they should be taught together. So compassion or empathy, the wish that others be free from suffering, as distinguished from loving kindness, the wish that others be happy. Compassion is the second of the four divine abidings or the Brahma-viharas, but not to think of it so much like linearly, really if you think of it circuitously. They all feed into each other and support each other. Compassion is used for the cultivation of internal tranquility, of awareness, a skillful quality of the mind-heart. Some synonyms for compassion are humanness, heart, kindness, sympathy, and grace. Thomas Merton, compassion is the keen awareness of the interdependence of all things. Compassion is a responsive movement of the heart. The heart quivers in response to suffering. Compassion is a manifestation of loving friendliness in action. Compassion leads us to appropriate action, and the appropriate compassionate action is just the pure heart, felt hope, that the path and, I'm sorry, that the pain and suffering stop. A way to think of it is that compassion lies at the heart of what it means to be fully human. And it is what allows us to be at peace in the midst of pain and turmoil. It is an energetic response, not a mental idea. We often find ourselves given the opportunity to engage with the task of finding the humility and the courage to open ourselves to our own or others' difficult and distressing circumstances and conditions. Certainly, it's not easy. It takes intention, persistence, patience, patience patience, and practice to move holding it as a core value and creating or cultivating it as a being state. The first step in developing compassion is being able to recognize, to open to, and to acknowledge that pain and suffering exists for everybody, everywhere, at some time or another. Some suffering is intense and terrible, and some is quiet and small. But it is all suffering just the same. Of course, suffering is not all there is in life, though oftentimes, in probably many moments while you've been here so far, it seems that way. 
Compassion is the antidote for anger and bitterness. And I, I think that's important because as we, not only in our own lives, but hopefully, you know, this practice is not merely just to assist us and ground us in our individual pursuit of freedom and awakening. There's a natural unfolding of wanting to engage um, with humankind, with all beings, with the earth in such a way that we can then bring off the cushion what we've acquired some mastery and, 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 and uh, graciousness with to bring it to the world in a way that everybody, every circumstance, every condition that we contact or that comes across our way, we leave better than we found it. In our world today, you can imagine, even if one has been a a social justice worker or um, has been in the military or um, is engaged in your um, financial life, the thing that you do, your right livelihood, your livelihood, even if your livelihood involves needing to access the energy of um, anger in the face of injustice, when that anger is grounded, it's not, it's not, you know, sometimes this practice can lead us to believe that um, it's, we should be shutting down various aspects of our emotional response to things. And it's not so much that we need to be shutting down or pushing aside or not engaging with, but that we come to that experience of feeling angry, of being frustrated in such a way that we see with clear mind what is going on so that then that informs us in relationship to what action we need to take at any given time. So it can be actually an illuminator. You know, it's, 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 it's a gift to be embodied and to have access to this wide, wide um, um, possibilities of experience of heart and mind. And actually it's in the action of cutting it off or not being available to it that we um, tighten around making those habit patterns even stronger. Imagine a mind where there is no bitter condemning judgment of oneself or of others. This mind does not see the world in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil. It sees only suffering and the end of suffering. What would happen if we looked at ourselves and at all of the different things that we see and did not judge any of it? None of it. We would see that some things bring pain and others bring happiness, but there would be no denunciation, no guilt, no shame, and no fear. Compassion for ourselves is often neglected in spiritual practice. But the ground for compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity toward ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self, from an awareness of who we are, 
that honors our true capacities and fears, our own feelings and integrity along with others. It is never based on fear or pity, the far enemy of compassion, but it is a deep response of the heart based on dignity, integrity, and well-being of every single creature. It is a spontaneous response to the suffering and pain we encounter. It is our feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of the universal experience of loss and pain. As our own hearts open and are healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect for all beings. It allows us to extend warmth, sensitivity, and openness to the sorrows around us in a truthful and genuine way. At times, compassion may give rise to action, and at times, it will not. It does not arise in order to solve problems, yet out of compassion flows action whenever it needs to be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has the fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things. The power of the compassionate heart, of genuine compassion to transform the pain we encounter is extraordinary. And it is this passionate heart that we are being called to cultivate and bring forward to meet the demand of the suffering in the world today. It is only this deep, clear, empty, not full of story, reactivity, misperception, anger, greed, aversion, and delusion that has the power and capacity that will meet the cries of the world. You get to define and choose that peace, the heart, place, and space that calls you to make a difference. Whether it be your own heart cultivation and your family, your community, your state, our country, the world, where in there is the whisper, this is for you to do, this is where you become engaged. It is not always the loud clamoring of the suffering that demands our touch. Deep listening is the foundation for right speech. If we cannot listen mindfully, we cannot practice right speech. We must look and listen with the eyes, ears, and heart of compassion. Compassionate listening brings about healing. When we, are not when we are not listening to or heard, we are not understood. When we are not understood, we become like a bomb ready to explode. Can we spend some time cultivating compassion as we do cultivating dislikes and judgment? 
Bio Akamalafe has this to say. These times are urgent. Let us slow down. A different urgency is called for in these moments. A broadening of the spectrum of action. A different kind of accountability. One which knows that love is not a bridge. Love is a hyphen. Different questions are alive right now. What would a politics of many streams and not just the mainstream look like? What needs to shift in order for genuine intercultural and interspecies dialogue to happen? How can we forgive ourselves without diminishing our complicity and entanglement in oppressive systems? In what ways do schools perpetuate an accepted form of violence on some children and an exclusionary notion of education? What strategies strategies could help us assume postures of curiosity into the mysterious lives of humans and non-human others? What if this trauma of being inappropriated has something to tell us? What if we are stuck in a Cartesian iceberg and the quantum leap we can make is from asking how we change the world to how we are what the world is doing? What keeps stressing our lives? And what if these irritants are allies we have not yet met? It is time for a sacred activism for asking new questions for slowing down, for applying the wisdom and clarity of a cultivated heart-mind. The fearlessness of compassion leads us directly into the conflict and suffering of life. Fearless compassion recognizes the inevitable suffering of life and our need to face the suffering in order to learn. Sometimes only the fire of suffering itself and the consequences of our actions can bring us deeper understanding, to feel kindness for all beings and to liberation. Then there is the power of this fearless compassion, which can be as tough as it is kind. Sometimes compassion for ourselves and others requires us to set clear, great limits and boundaries. We must learn to say no and yet not put another out of our heart. Audre Lorde, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. The perception of separation between self and others transforms and drops away as we cultivate the habit of self-care as a wise way to spend our effort and as a doorway into connection. It is also an act of generosity to take the steps and measures to ensure that we are well. I say all this not to take us out of what we're up to here, but just as a reminder that what we're up to here has significance and will impact what happens when we 
bring ourselves back into the world. It's not that the world is over there and we're over here. It's all with us. You're familiar with that. That's what you've been engaged with in your minds for this week. You couldn't leave it outside. So bring it in and embrace it because that's where the learning is. That's where the power to engage the heart and mind and cultivate peace and ease exists. Okay. That's where we ended. I will read a poem, however. And then we'll sit for a few minutes. The Healing Time. Finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. Thank you for your listening and for your practice. Have a good night if this is the end of the day for you. And if there's some energy and some desire, it's time for walking and then ending with our last sit of the day. Have a peaceful night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.